Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world for February 25th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. On the program today, a conversation with Danny Shure, creator of Strike the Musical, will be talking about his plans to bring that to the big screen. Also, I'll have a conversation with Denis Lemelin. He is the national president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. And finally, we'll have Tyler Shipley, who will be presenting a short reading from an essay he has written about the Olympic Games now taking place in Vancouver. We'll also have headlines around the left and music is the weapon. And now the alert headlines for February 25th, 2010. Women's status in Canada has eroded significantly over the past five years, according to the Canadian Labour and Women's Groups. Barbara Byers, Executive Vice President of the Canadian Labour Congress, said, Women in Canada have lost ground in many areas. A recent CLC report takes issue with the federal government's report to the UN on women's equality. The report points out the government's decision to eliminate the phrase gender equality from the mandate of Status of Women Canada, the country's primary institution responsible for gender equality. It also highlights the closing of 12 of 16 Status of Women offices and the elimination of funding to a program for court challenges related to equality rights. In 2004, the World Economic Forum Gender Gap Index ranked Canada 7th. In 2009, Canada fell to 25th. Aboriginal Affairs Minister Chris Bentley said he isn't ruling out handing over some disputed land to Six Nations. The disputed land in question has been the site of a long-running Aboriginal occupation in Caledonia, Ontario. The former Douglas Creek Estates is held in trust by the province but is still occupied by Six Nations protesters. The government has said protesters can remain there while all sides negotiate a resolution to the land claim. More than 3,000 public sector union representatives marched on Quebec's National Assembly this week in a warning that government employees will not accept another settlement imposed on them. The contract imposed on them by Premier Jean Charest in December 2005 expires on March 31st. A union rally of more than 50,000 is planned for next month in Montreal of Quebec public sector unions of the 1970s. The Afghan government says at least 33 civilians have died in a NATO airstrike in the southern Afghan province of Uruzgan. The Afghanistan Council of Ministers strongly condemned the airstrike, saying it was unjustifiable. The dead included four women and one child. The incident was not part of Operation Mashtarak, the major offensive to combat the Taliban near the town of Marja. Over the past 10 days, another 19 Afghan civilians have been killed in Marja. General David Petraeus, who oversees the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, said that Marja was the opening salvo in a campaign to turn back the Taliban. The Dutch government has collapsed over disagreements with the governing coalition on extending troop deployments in Afghanistan. After marathon talks, the Christian Democratic Prime Minister Jan Peter Balkanende announced that the Labour Party was quitting the government. The Prime Minister has been considering a NATO request for Dutch forces to stay in Afghanistan beyond 2010. But Labour, the second largest coalition party, has opposed the move. 
the development is seen as a major blow to the U.S.-led NATO alliance against the Taliban. Canada has also promised to withdraw its 2,800 soldiers by the end of 2011. Four European countries whose passports were implicated in a Hamas commander's killing have increased pressure on Israel to investigate alleged identity fraud. It is widely suspected that the Israeli spy agency Mossad used false passports from Britain, Ireland, France and Germany in the Dubai assassination of Hamas commander Mahmoud al-Mabhud. European intelligence agency Interpol has issued arrest notices for 11 of the suspects listed under the fraudulent passports. Amid mounting diplomatic tension, British Foreign Secretary David Miliband urged the Israelis to cooperate fully in investigating the incident. When the Olympics leave town, Vancouver will be left with an unexpected 970 security cameras in public areas across the city. The cost of the security cameras is expected to top $2 million, with the province contributing a significant portion of the security budget. Critics say that the cameras have additional social costs, such as diminished personal privacy in public spaces. The BC Civil Liberties Union says that while business argues the cameras will increase consumer confidence, they may result in panhandlers and others engaged in so-called undesirable activities being displaced from public spaces. Toronto City Council has called on the federal government to formally commit to shoulder the financial burden of the upcoming G8 and G20 meetings to be held in and around Toronto. City Council has predicted that the meetings will be, quote, the largest security event in Canadian history. The motions passed in council authorized the city to secure funding for extraordinary policing and other costs associated with the summit. Last Friday, the federal government confirmed the June 26th and 27th summit will be held at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre in the heart of the downtown core. The Canadian Union of Postal Workers has warned that Canada Post is on the road to increasing privatization. The union, which represents more than 54,000 workers, reports that Canada Post has used the economic recession as a means to shut down rural post offices and cut back on labor costs. Canada Post wants the federal government to reconsider its moratorium on rural post office closures, even though the Conservatives recently announced they would be maintaining the moratorium. Canada Post has also asked the government to appoint a third party to review its contract with the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. The union says this code is for cutting labor costs. Spanish trade unionists are planning large-scale protests against Social Democratic Prime Minister José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero's attempts at economic reform. It is the first time in six years that the beleaguered Zapatero, whose party has slipped badly in opinion polls, has faced a trade union rebellion. With the economy still in recession after almost two years, Zapatero is now running a country with four million unemployed. The government forecasts that the economy will continue to shrink this year and some believe unemployment could rise to 22%. Unions claim workers are being unfairly expected to shoulder the blame of the recession and instead pin the responsibility on bankers and business leaders. Those are the alert headlines for February 25th, 2010. And now, Around the Left for February 25th, 2010. In the 11 years since Chavez was elected president, Venezuela has been the site of both hope and controversy. Two events are planned in Toronto to discuss the successes and challenges of the Bolivarian Revolution as it enters its second decade. 
On February 26, Federico Fuentes and Quirez Janique, two well-known writers in Venezuela, will host a public forum profiling the people's movement. They will discuss the gains of the grassroots movements in Venezuela and the challenges they face. The forum begins at 7 p.m. on February 26 in room 108 in the Koffler House at the University of Toronto. The following day, February 27th, will be filled with workshops discussing the various challenges of solidarity in Venezuela. Registration is at 9.30 a.m. with the opening session beginning at 10 a.m. There is a suggested donation of $10. This day-long teach-in will be held in room 2117 in the Sydney Smith Building at the University of Toronto. Naomi Klein will be the first speaker in a series of lectures in honor of David Lewis, a founder of the NDP and its national leader from 1970 to 1975. Klein's lecture takes place on February 25th at Trinity St. Paul's United Church in Toronto. Klein's talk will be on climate debt. Tickets are $20 or $15 for low-income and students. The lecture begins at 6.30 on February 25th at Trinity St. Paul's United Church in Toronto. Since it was first launched in 2005, the International Israeli Apartheid Week has grown to become one of the most important global events in the Palestine Solidarity Calendar. Carleton University and the University of Ottawa are hosting events for the 6th International Israeli Apartheid Week. From March 1st to March 6th, there will be speakers and public forums discussing the Palestine Solidarity Movement. For more info, go to carleton.saia.ca. On March 8th, the University of Winnipeg will host the first annual Afghanistan Film Festival and Mini Market. Three films will be screened, Enemies of Happiness, Beauty School of Kabul, and Afghan Star. The Mini Market will feature various fairly traded Afghan crafts and soaps. Tickets are $12 for adults, $7 for students, and are available at the University of Winnipeg, Red River College, University of Manitoba, and McNally Robinson. All proceeds will be used to the Om E. Miram Orphanage and the Omid Girls Scholarship Fund. The festival begins at 4 p.m. at the University of Winnipeg. The Toronto Women's Bookstore is in crisis and needs your help. On Monday, March 8th, they are hosting a music and art fundraiser at the Transact Club in Toronto. They are also looking for volunteers to help run the event as well as artists to contribute paintings, photography, jewellery, anything for a raffle, door prizes, or a silent auction. To help the Toronto Women's Bookstore, email music at sarahmarlow.com. Marlow with an E. The Toronto Women's Bookstore is one of the only remaining non-profit feminist bookstores in North America. Help keep this great bookstore in business. Attend the fundraiser on March 8th at the Transact Club in Toronto. And that's Around the Left for February 25th. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. Danny Schur has been called Canada's Andrew Lloyd Webber. That reputation is mainly based on his musical, Strike the Musical, 
a love story amidst the riots and bloodshed of the 1919 Winnipeg General Stri- Strike. More recently, Danny has written the musical score of the just-released feature film Snake River, which is directed by Joseph Novak, who also wrote the script and edited the film. Uh, we have Danny Shore on the phone from his home in Winnipeg. We're going to start by giving our listeners across the country a little taste of Strike the Musical. <laughs> Okay, Danny Shore, now we've had a bit of a listen. Let's talk about what's currently happening. Snake River is in theaters, I know, in Winnipeg. Tell us about this film and your motivation for making it. Snake River started out as my partner Joseph Novak's uh, pet samurai project, if you can believe it. His uh, uh, background saw him really interested in the samurai movies of old, and specifically their later conversion into westerns in the 50s and 60s in Hollywood. And just sort of vibing off of that ethic, he had a script which he had hoped to get done at some point in time. As he and I worked to develop Strike into a feature movie and looked at some of the criteria for the major funding that's available at some of the funders. Uh, Criteria number one is that a feature have been produced by the production company prior to the new application for Strike. So we decided that uh, we would complete Snake River as a feature. So on evenings and weekends over the course of six months, he identified a whole bunch of Winnipeg actors, all the notable ones, to volunteer to complete it. And then I did the score, and it came out recently, and it just turned out so, so well. You would never, ever dream that it cost less than $5,000. It looks like a multi-million dollar feature. So it'll be coming out across the country over the next few months. Well, congratulations on that accomplishment. Yeah, thanks. Okay, well, let's move on to Strike the Musical. Uh, Before we begin the conversation, we're going to give our listeners uh, another sample of the music from Strike the Musical. I won't yield first, sign this deal first. It takes force immediately by severing your unioning, eliminating, striking, but you'll have jobs. There's no parting. From our starving, but he wounds our dignity with patronizing, taxing lies, impeding us and leading us straight to the dogs. Ultimatum, my words were fatal. Debate them, mistake them, best ye not. Well, there it is, Danny. First, why don't you tell our, our listeners what happens in Strike the Musical, the era, the narrative? Absolutely. It 
is about the era of the 1919 Winnipeg general strike. But that said, it's really talking about issues that go way back in our history to the era of Riel, uh, the era of the first immigration from Europe into Canada, specifically into Manitoba, what happened during the First World War in terms of the way it affected uh, human rights issues in Canada and the world. And, of course, it takes place during the Winnipeg General Strike, but the just like in history, the General Strike is really the boiling over point for the whole period. Um, I got interested in the story, or what really drew me to the story was when I noted that the guy that got killed, the guy that was at the very epicenter of the strike, as it were, because he died so famously, purportedly shot through the heart, pretty much on the steps of City Hall in Winnipeg, was a Ukrainian, Mike Sokolowski. And being of Ukrainian-Canadian background, that just really piqued my interest. And the more research I did into his story, the less I could actually find out about the real man. It was just an unbelievable mystery. And then while I was doing all that research, um, where Mike Sokolowski, there was almost nothing known, there was a lot known about another actual figure from Manitoba history, also Ukrainian, a Jewish guy from Ukraine, who had a pen name, Moisha Almazov. His real name was actually Solomon Pearl. But he was um, uh, a student, mostly, and uh, a labor activist of the era. But what was so compelling about his story, although he wasn't a strike leader, he was one of the ones picked up after the strike to try and paint a picture of a Bolshevik revolution transplanted from Russia to Winnipeg. That very much wasn't the case. He was freed. But what I found out was so compelling about his story was that he was turned in by his Ukrainian Catholic neighbor. Uh, so that actual story, I formed a historical fiction uh, that connected to the unknown and still mystery of Mike Sokolowski. That was this uh, sort of double-pronged genesis to the story. Um, and then also put in the story a Romeo and Juliet love story between Mike's godson that's living with him and Moisha's sister, Rebecca. And that encompasses a whole bunch more um, of the sort of social turmoil of the period. A Ukraine, <coughs> excuse me, a Ukrainian Catholic man and a Jewish woman having a relationship in 1919 was virtually unthinkable. Um, so uh, that's the sort of of loose story, all set within the actual events that take place during the general strike. Now, Danny, your dedication to this project is uh, nothing short of remarkable. Beginning in 2003 with uh, private workshops, tell us about the lifespan of the production, Strike the Musical. I'll try and do it in less than an hour, but here it goes. Yes, in 2003, we had workshops, very successful workshops, my partnership with the U of W Drama Department. In 2004, before the musical was even finished, we did an outdoor abridged version, not exactly where the historic events took place, but just kind of around the corner. And that uh, spawned such a wellspring of interest in Winnipeg that really drove the interest for 2005's full-scale premiere. We had it at a large outdoor stage here, Rainbow Stage, which seats like 
2,200 people. We had 24 shows. It was a critical and commercial success. We're very excited. That saw interest from the theater community across the country. And then in 2006, it was performed in Saskatoon. And the artistic director there said, you know, it would make a fabulous movie. And so we began the process of adapting it to a movie, first by doing a short-form movie, just like 17 minutes to sort of act as a demo of what it would be like so we could solicit interest in the movie industry. So we did that in 2006 and premiered it also in Old Market Square in uh, uh, later 2006. Then uh, that uh, resulted in interest from the CBC to do a national radio special, which we then wrote and had... um, first performed in Winnipeg in the Burton Cummings Theatre in May 2007, and it was broadcast across the country later that year. That triggered interest in a book version from a publisher in Toronto. That got released later in 2007. Then 2008, we spent most of the year getting the full-length screenplay version ready and began soliciting the interest of actors, which we're still doing. In 2009, it was the 90th anniversary of the strike, and we came up with, uh, I think, the coolest adaptation that we did, uh, similar to what we did in 2004, an abridged outdoor version, but this time the city let us close down Main Street in Winnipeg to perform the show in the very, very location that the culmination of the strike, so-called Bloody Saturday, happened, the corner of Main and William in Winnipeg. I'm looking at the pictures right now. There were 6,000 people on a beautiful, sunny May 23rd. It was just utterly perfect. And that drove interest and um, was sort of the capping point for people to say, you know, we could do this annually, just like they do with Anne of Green Gables in Prince Edward Island. So later in 2009, we produced the first annual full-scale show, not the shortened outdoor thing, but a full-scale in-the-theater musical that we now will be performing annually in Winnipeg, and this year we're doing it in Winnipeg at the Forks in the Manitoba Theatre for Young People, uh, where we did it last year, and this year it's from July 29th to August 4th. Danny, I'd like to ask uh, what your or what the current situation is regarding the feature film production of Strike. Well, funny you should mention, for the last three weeks we've been doing major scouting. There are 72 locations. It's a big, big movie. We've hired... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. The um, director of photography, as I mentioned before, Joseph Novak is the director. We've got a great designer, and we are ready to shoot on about ten weeks' notice. Um, we are currently pitching stars worldwide with the script that we finished in 2008. There's lots of interest, and every indication is that we will be shooting in Winnipeg in 2011. Hollywood stars? Absolutely. Um, we have pitched. Uh, a list of stars that's longer than my arms, from John Cusack to Hugh Jackman, Anne Hathaway. And, you know, nobody has got back to us and said, you know, this script really stinks. What's your your problem? What are you thinking? 1919 Winnipeg? You know, you you can imagine a skit where you say to someone, it's a musical set during the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. And you hear either a click on the line or, you know, that classic cliche of that agent knocking the phone on the, the desk like, is this phone working? Um, but what everyone's responding to is that it's a really universal story 
about conflict. I always say that um, the international and most universal metaphor from the strike is that it's a breakdown of civil society. That story happens over and over and over, whether it's the Balkans, Sudan, Indonesia, you name it. Um, this was just the most recent case of a breakdown in civil society in Manitoba. There are others. Um, but it's one that has so many pointed parallels to today that people in the United States go, I totally get this. Uh, all these themes, all these issues, they're still with us. And that's what's so exciting for us because it's our story with total relevance to the world. That's why I'm so into it. Well, Danny, I know there are other exciting Winnipeg stories that you are going to tell, uh, including that of Louis Riel. But we're out of time on Alert Radio here this afternoon, so we're so grateful for your talents and your efforts to bring this story to the world. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll certainly come on again to talk about Riel anytime. Strike the Musical, and there's a website our listeners can go and check out. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Denis Lemelin. Denis Lemelin is the national president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. CUPW has just issued a warning that Canada Post has started a campaign to sell the public on its idea of closing some more post offices and privatizing some of its services. We have on the phone from his Ottawa office, Denis Lemelin. Welcome to Alert Radio. Yes, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Now, can you tell us, what is the basis for the union's claim that Canada Post is on a mission to downsize and privatize? So, for us, it's really like a plan that Canada Post really started a couple of years ago when they really put forward, when uh, when the government asked to have a, a review of the postal service, that Canada Post, at that time, they said, okay, they want to to modernize the post office to in some ways, to face a big uh, other big corporation. And at the time, they really asked that uh, the government give them the possibility uh, to really open the market. And to open the market, they say, in some ways, we have to be more competitive, and for that, we have to cut some services, and mostly services in the rural area. And in some ways, we, we will improve our... A possibility of production in the urban area that we can compete more. So eliminate that job in the urban sector and eliminate services in, uh, in, in small places. And when the government introduced the bill, Bill C-14 or C-44, about the international mail to privatize and open the market to the international mail, Canada Post did nothing. So in some ways, the, we, we are always uh, preoccupy about the privatization, and uh, we feel that Canada Post is really setting the way to go in that direction, and well, we have to protect the service on that. Can you give us more details about the changes that Canada Post has in store? So for uh, what, what Canada Post asked the, uh, the uh, how do you call it, the independent panel uh, on uh, some of the issue, 
they, they first asked to look at the moratorium on uh, rural services, but the government said we want to keep the moratorium, but the government is still uh, looking after it. Uh, the government, uh, the uh, Canada Post asked after that uh, to approve an employee share ownership plan uh, that Canada Post employee can buy or other people can buy a share of Canada Post. And for us, that's really uh, like a privatization. Another aspect is the fact that Canada Post said in some ways we want to uh, to review uh, the contract with the Canadian Union of Postal Service uh, to make it more competitive. So what uh, Canada Post asked the government is to appoint a third party uh, to look at our at our contract and make it more uh, more uh, in a way that more attractive uh, for a private corporation who at some point can buy Canada Post. So it's always this idea that uh, setting the way uh, to uh, privatization, and they did the same with uh, the $2.5 billion that they want to invest to uh, really upgrade the plan, change uh, the uh, mechanization, and all of that. So that's for us, that signs that the union have to stand up and really protect the uh, public post office. Denis, you are the national president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. What are some of the suggestions, the counter-suggestions your union is making to preserve this Canada Post and its services? Uh, I think for us, one of the most important things during the last uh, four or five years, we have really developed a vision about the future of the post office. We really want to maintain the post office as a public and universal service. So we think that Canada Post has to look at growth, not saying, okay, the postal service is down, we have a recession, we have to cut. But uh, Canada Post can go in every door in the country. So they have to think about growth. And for us, two, two big aspects, they, they have to develop some innovative services. And we were talking and pushing the idea that they can have like a, a, a bank, a postal bank, that can give service to the population and find a service around that. We want uh, really to maintain job in the community. So if we want to maintain job in the community, we must have what we call uh, the last kilometer. That Canada Post be the only service or only uh, motorized vehicle going to every door in the country. Can you actually, uh, when you say a postal bank, uh, be a little clearer on uh, exactly what that means? Uh, because in the Act of Canada Post, the Canada Post Act, there's the possibility of Canada Post to off- offer uh, postal services. And we know when we look at what's happening globally in the world, we have, like uh, in Europe, some uh, some postal service who are offering banks. Same thing in New Zealand. So that's, uh, banks are getting out of the rural area, but Canada Post can take the place and say we can offer different services, postal service, like a postal bank that can be used. That's something happening in other, in other countries. And uh, I understand that millions could be saved by upgrading and modernizing, but you're calling for a reinvestment to preserve jobs. Uh, absolutely, because in some ways we are, like people are saying, we are a financial crisis. The government will have to invest money to protect jobs. And Canada Post is a crown corporation, and as a crown corporation, I think they have the social responsibility to really be up there and say, oh, we can protect jobs. So we, we can have a new mechanization, but this new me- mechanization will make uh, some uh, productive gain. And we said that this productive gain has to be used to really support job and create job and maintain job in the uh, municipality. 
And we can do that like to having more uh, door-to-door delivery to maintain the service in the rural area to really expand uh, like the uh, the first level, like the contact with the, with the public and all of that. So in some ways, there's ways as a public service to really look at the future in a way that you look at service more the uh, citizen of the country than serving like big corporation. And for that, if uh, the uh, the productive gains that Canada Post will make with the modernization has to be shared with the population and have to be shared uh, with uh, the workers too. So it's a way to create jobs. And I think as a Crown Corporation, Canada Post has this social responsibility. Denis Lemelin, you also suggested that uh, ownership, uh, rather uh, employee ownership of shares in Canada Post would be something that you actually oppose, although it sounds uh, like it might be a good thing. Explain yeah. why it's yeah, not. We, we, we opposed that for a long time because it's not the first time that Canada Post tried to uh, go in this uh, share because it's the idea that it's, uh, it's uh, a public service. And a public service has to be owned not by shareholder, but has to be owned by the population. And that's uh, always been our view. As a public service, you have to be owned by the citizen and give service to the citizen. So if we go in that direction that people can buy share, it's a way it's opened the door to the privatization of the uh, postal service. Well, I would like to thank you very much, Denis Lemelin, uh, National Pleasure. President of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, for joining us here on Alert Radio. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And now, Alert presents Tyler Shipley's short essay about the Olympic Games. Shipley teaches international politics at York University and is a member of QP3903. Pro Sports Anti-Olympics, Reclaiming the Games from the Games. One of the first photographs I ever posed for was of my dad and me skating in our frozen backyard in Winnipeg. I wasn't even a year old, but I was already engaged in an activity that would frame my moral and ideological compass for the better part of three decades and counting. Hockey has given me community, even as it has been used to legitimate politics that destroy communities. Hockey taught me values like teamwork and commitment, even as it reinforced the values that perpetuate sexism, heterosexism, and racism. And so it is with this year's great corporate sporting spectacle, Vancouver 2010. Each day I read a new article describing the myriad destructions the Olympic Games are wreaking upon people in British Columbia and beyond. Roger Ennis' excellent piece in the bullet last week provided just a sketch of that destruction, ranging from the militarization of Vancouver and the cleansing of the city's impoverished to the innumerable offenses committed against the hundreds of indigenous nations who have never ceded the territory upon which the games are being held. Our Olympic coverage takes every opportunity to valorize our soldiers in the occupation of Afghanistan, exactly 30 years after Canada boycotted the Moscow Olympics to protest their occupation of Afghanistan. Meanwhile, our so-called green games are the most environmentally destructive on record. And as public money is poured into the seemingly bottomless pit of over-budget Olympic expenses, British Columbia's government has had to acknowledge that they are slashing and burning the services that build and protect the communities that the Olympics claim to celebrate. But does any of this have to do with chasing a rubber disc around a frozen pond? 
Does my compulsion to dig the puck out of the corner and throw a perfect pass into the slot mean that I'm endorsing Canadian colonialism? If I'm so serious about resisting the B.C. government's criminalization of poverty, must I also give up my dream of dropping down to block a shot from the point in a crucial penalty kill in the third period? I would like to believe that we do not have to abandon the games that we love in order to critique the way those same games are exploited for the purposes of the games. In short, I'm not prepared to blame the activities that bring me happiness for the fact that they are being used to promote a corporate, militaristic, and colonial agenda. Sports can play a positive role in our communities, in promoting healthy and active lifestyles, in celebration of leisure time, and in providing a venue for building meaningful social connections. Ironically, the Olympics are actually undermining that role. As some $6 billion, at least, is thrown at the Olympics, sports and community centers are being shut down in cities across Canada. The outdoor rinks where I grew up are disappearing, replaced by a handful of massive arenas that are almost always overbooked and inaccessible. Sporting venues are increasingly priced out of the range of poor and working poor families, and not surprisingly, research has consistently shown that Olympic athletes are overwhelmingly drawn from privileged sections of society. The message here seems to be that only the rich can participate in sport. The poor must content themselves with buying team merchandise and watching on TV. Of course, there is still much that sports can offer, even to the observer. It doesn't take long to realize that a hockey game cannot be won without a team of individuals cooperating and taking on different but crucial roles, a lesson that I have often remembered and come back to when organizing political demonstrations. Athletes often represent stories of resilience and struggle against a variety of obstacles, and the protesters in Vancouver are showing that same sort of resilience in standing strong against the largest concentration of Canadian military forces in the world at this moment. Sport is, at its essence, an activity taken for its own sake, for fun. And in a society that often appears to have internalized the logic of capitalist modernity, where every activity must have some purpose which is almost inevitably connected to someone's ability to make profits, it does us all some good to be reminded of pursuits that lie primarily outside those parameters. Progressive political organizers often take as a starting point the notion that, as the anti-globalization movement claimed, another world is possible. I see no reason that sports can't be a part of that new world. To be sure, many of the structures and assumptions built around sporting cultures need to be roundly interrogated, like so many institutions in contemporary liberal capitalism, the family, for instance, Sports have been attached to a variety of problematic value systems. Hockey culture in Canada is profoundly white. Tim Horton's apple pie imagery of rural pond hockey is almost entirely devoid of racialized people, and the NHL consistently treats Indigenous players as if they are naturally inclined to show poor sportsmanship, giving them harsher penalties for on-ice infractions and creating mythologies around their violent and unpredictable nature. And it only requires one viewing of the appalling weekly installments of Don Cherry's sanctioned hate segments on CBC to recognize that misogyny, homophobia, and xenophobia are woven into the fabric of Canada's game. But is this reflective of something wrong with hockey or something wrong with Canada? Just as most progressive observers would support a reformulating of the family rather than its destruction, sports ought to be treated as a sphere of contestation. We can have hockey without the war, and we can have a competition between the world's fastest skiers and most skilled curlers without the Olympics. If, in protesting the Olympic Games, we forget about the actual games upon which the spectacle is built, we risk alienating ourselves entirely from people who might otherwise be receptive to the critiques we're bringing. What is worse, we risk alienating ourselves from something that can be important in our own lives. I made my first friendships and faced some of my earliest physical and emotional tests at the rink. 
I had my most formative brush with capitalism when my beloved Winnipeg Jets were sold to a businessman from Phoenix. And in the darkest moments of the struggle with depression, I was offered a free ticket to see the Toronto Maple Leafs lose, a pleasure that I cherished with all my prairie heart and that helped shake me through my own personal struggles. I will continue to support and participate in the anti-Olympic protests. I will continue to denounce the Games as a corporate spectacle paid for by the sweat and blood of workers and Indigenous people. I will continue to reject the jingoism and war propaganda that pepper the presentation of the Games, and I will insist upon a world where I can watch Sidney Crosby go head-to-head with Alex Ovechkin without simultaneously legitimating the destruction of communities like my own. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And a couple weeks ago, you might remember I played a whole bunch of Bob Dylan songs with a whole bunch of other people playing his music. And I start thinking about that a bit, and I start thinking about Bob Dylan, and I realized he learned a lot of his music from Woody Guthrie. So today's show is songs written by Woody Guthrie and performed by several different generations of great singers. Here to start is Joe Jenks with The Deportees. The crops are all in The peaches are rotting The oranges are stacked And they're so dumps They're flying you back To the Mexico border Pay all your money to wait back again My father's own father He waited that river It took all the money that he made in his life My brothers and sisters They worked in the fruit trees They rode the big trucks till down and died Goodbye to my one Goodbye Rosalitarios Mis amigos Jesus y Maria Won't have a name when you ride the big airplane For all they will call you are illegal and others not wanted work season ends and we have to move on 600 miles to the Mexico border they chase us like outlaws like rustlers and thieves we've died in your hills and Died in your deserts, died in your valleys, we've died in your plains, we've died in your trees, and we've died in your bushes, 
Both sides of the river We've died just the same Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios, mis amigos, Jesus y Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane All they will call you Sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon Like a fireball of lightning It shook all our hills And who are these friends All scattered like dried leaves The radio says They are just deportees Is this the best way we can grow your big orchards is this the best way we can grow your good fruit to fall like dried leaves and rot on your topsoil to be known by no name except deportees goodbye to my one goodbye Rosalita Dios mis amigos Jesus y Maria you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane all they will call you will be deported once more goodbye to my one goodbye to my one goodbye Jenks with the Deportees, the songs also known as Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. thing about Woody is that years ago he was kind of like an outlaw. He was a, a radical, revolutionary guy running around, and uh, he never changed. He always was a radical, revolutionary running around. But his songs have been adapted and adopted by thousands and thousands and millions of people. And a lot of the major stars of, of folk music and rock and roll and country music all sing Woody Guthrie songs. Here's Amy Lou Harris with Hobo's Lullaby. Go to sleep, you weary hobo. Let the towns drift slowly by. Do not think of 
all the wind and snow So go to sleep, you weary hobo Let the towns drift slowly by Can't you hear the steel rails humming? That's a hobo's Pretty boy Floyd, the outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well. It was in the town of Shawnee on a Saturday afternoon. His wife beside me in a wagon, and in the town they rode. Well, the deputy sheriff approached him in a manner rather rude, using vulgar words and language. Some with a fountain pen 
But in the sickest world you ramble and in the sickest world you roam You all never see no outlaw Drive a family from their home the Ducks singing Pretty Boy Floyd and the lead singer was Leonard Podolik and before that Emmylou Harris with Hobo's Lullaby. The next thing up is Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen loves Woody Guthrie and here he is with probably Woody's most hard-headed song, Vigilante Man. Rainy 
Vigilante Man by Woodrow Wilson Guthrie. Woody Guthrie. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. That is Alert Radio for February 25th, 2010. We can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'd like to thank Tessa Vanderhart for filling in for Chris Albee this week. We hope that you'll be able to join us again next week here on Alert Radio. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com.